Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the latest edition of Woke Bros. Of course, I'm your co-host, Big Wise, a.k.a. Wosni Lambre. Joined, as always, by my brother, my partner, out on the west side of Los Angeles, Nando Vila. What's going on, Nando? Doing well. Doing well. Excited for the, today's show. Super excited, man, because we're all watching the news. We see what's going on out in the out in the Gaza Strip, West Bank, Jerusalem. Uh, it's it's pretty freaking crazy. It's very scary, uh, and it's the roots of it are so deep. And some people say complicated. I say not that complicated. But um, we have on our show today a brother who is killing it. He's a journalist, and he does the fantastic podcast called Blowback. Did the history of Cuba for this season, season two. I'm like stoked for it. I already checked the the pilot episode. It's fantastic. Noah Cohen, welcome to Woke Bros, my brother. It's an honor to have you on today. Honored to be here, man. Listen, man, I listened to episode one of the Cuba joint. We're going to get to that at the second part of the show. It's just fantastic. I just love like the way you guys planted this, the seeds for how the episode is going to go about American propaganda, why they have to propagandize us against stuff like socialism, et cetera, et cetera, popular uprising. And you just, I don't know, you guys, you and your partner did an amazing job of weaving in all the stuff that you're going to give us this season. So I'm really excited to be checking that out. But we have you on the show today, man, because look, nobody's going to call me a fucking Middle Eastern scholar or expert. <laughs> so we got to get somebody on here who actually knows what the hell they're talking about. So no, if you could, if you could break down you know, the situation at hand that's caused this, you know, this most recent fracas. Right. So I guess the uh, the the place that I would start with this most recent situation is with the situation of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. So this is a guy who's been under indictment for corruption and bribery, but he's still been the Prime Minister of Israel, the longest serving in the country's history. And the perception is really now that he's kind of at the end of his rope. And, you know, historically, before elections, the way that he has been able to juice support for himself is to do horrible things to the Palestinians, to invade Gaza, to, um, you know, do something, you know, like uh, some awful demonstration in Jerusalem. Um, and, you know, in Israel, there's even they uh, like I forget where the phrase originates, but among Israeli generals, it's come from, you know, they're referring to it as mowing the lawn, um, you know, dehumanizing, <laughs> awful, <laughs> like, you know, like cynical policy. And so in this most recent you know, situation and how things have gotten to truly a historic level, like we haven't seen this kind of Palestinian uprising since uh, the last intifada. And this is, you know, a popular uprising um, that we are seeing, you know, in its early stages. Um, the, you know, the, the roots of it, I guess, uh, the, the next phase of it then happens when the, you know, Netanyahu decides to move forward with evictions in a neighborhood called Sheikh Jarrah. Now, Sheikh Jarrah has been, it is a neighborhood in East Jerusalem that is settled by Palestinians, but Sheikh Jarrah is located in a piece of real estate that the Israeli government wants to make a Jewish settlement. And, you know, the Israeli government has, it's, it has a very simple thing that it does, which is that it controls the lives of Palestinians in East Jerusalem, in the West Bank, and in the Gaza Strip. It has total control over their lives through a number of ways. Um, but there are obviously differences in how it maintains that control. And so the way that it does it in East Jerusalem, one of the strategies has been through using sort of para-government agencies, you know, settler groups. They evict Palestinians from their homes. 
And these are the videos that you've seen where, you know, it's like some guy with a Brooklyn accent or whatever, like, you know, telling a Palestinian, like, if it wasn't me, it would be somebody else, you know, and, and, and all that, like, it's like those, like, that is the process of what has been a years long ongoing thing. In fact, there was once a, a, a group uh, years ago when I first got interested or involved um, or, you know, really aware of the issue, there was a group called the Sheikh Sharaf Solidarity Movement that did, um, you know, weekly demonstrations in this, in this, uh, in this area. So now um, in this neighborhood, the Israeli government, Bibi Netanyahu, they have begun the process of, uh, you know, they started intensifying evictions. And they started doing this right at the beginning of Ramadan, you know, a, a truly holy time for Muslim people. And Jerusalem, you know, it should be known, it should be, people should be reminded, is the third holiest city in, in Islam. After Mecca and Medina, it's Jerusalem. Wow. Um, the rock where, you know, the Dome of the Rock covers the, the rock where Muhammad, you know, is said to have ascended to heaven. And so this is a, you know, this is a very... Um, and the Palestinians, this is an, you know, like the, like the, this is an important place for them, not just where they live. It is where they live. Um, but it is also like something that has a lot more meaning and has a lot of meaning to Muslims. And, uh, these evictions in Sheikh Sharach ramp up at the beginning of Ramadan and protests arise. There's pushback, there's international attention. And so the police begin, um, by, I, I, I mean, you see them crack down and all these brutal gassing and dispersing people from, you know, the mosque uh, um, in uh, on the Temple Mount or on the uh, Dome of the Rock. And, and, and they are they are, you know, cleansing the area, eliminating it of Palestinians as some kind of crowd control on a Muslim holy holiday. And it produces this, you know, like in, 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 in simultaneously, separately, you have in Gaza. You know, Gaza, the, the Palestinian political authority and control of Gaza nominally is Hamas. But Gaza is under a blockade, which means that, you know, their water rights, their airspace, how much construction materials they get, medicine, all of it is completely controlled and at the discretion of the Israeli military. So Hamas sees this, you know, like, like Palestinians, Gazans, see what is happening at the Temple Mount. And you have, you know, there is the, the Israeli government begins, uh, initiates in this latest series, they blew up a large building as part of a uh, rising escalations uh, along the Gaza border, they blew up a very large, like the tallest residential building, uh, sorry, the tallest building in Gaza city, I believe. Um, and it was a reaction that Israeli generals acknowledged. They said, yeah, they're probably going to fire rockets at Tel Aviv because Hamas has for years said they could fire rockets at Tel Aviv, but they haven't because they know that it would incur a really, really, really huge loss of life. And it would be, you know, it would, it would be part of a, a chain of escalation that wouldn't necessarily end with, you know, them victorious or something. But at the same time, the people who they, you know, like their constituency, the people who live under, who live with Hamas and people, the Palestinians in East Jerusalem and the Palestinians in the West Bank, these are not people who have civil rights. They do not live in, you know, particularly, you know, in a particularly comfortable way. And there is no, at this point, path forward for them through any of the previous channels. There's no diplomatic path to a two-state solution that's in motion. Israel shows no sign of caring. And so, you know, what we're seeing now is the natural result of what happens when you keep on telling people we're going to give you liberation and you just continue to intensify your control over them and, you know, try and, you know, depopulate them effectively. I mean, literally evict and remove people from their homes, something that does not just happen in this neighborhood, but happens all over the country. Noah, yeah. why are you such a self-hating Jew? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's a story. There is a story. <laughs> there's so many things to what you what you just said. But what I do want to track back before Nando jumps in here is. Uh, so you mentioned BB at the top of of your statement just now. 
Um, so is, is it your estimation, just so people who are listening can kind of get a better idea of what you mean? Like, do you think this is an intentional provocation on the part of Bibi Netanyahu and Yahoo to yes. curry favor amongst yes. the Israeli citizens? It's like, look at these savages attacking us. I'm the ones keeping the savages at bay. And yes, and this is a history. This isn't something mm. old. For example, the second intifada, which was the last intifada in the early 2000s, um, that featured, you know, like, like of which suicide bombings were a feature. Um, but like the thing, that, and that's what people remember, right? Like they remember what they describe as indiscriminate Palestinian terror. But, you know, it was set off for a variety of reasons, including the collapse of any diplomatic path toward Palestinian freedom. And, you know, another key, you know, uh, instigator was that Ariel Sharon, then a government minister, um, made a point of with full, you know, with a bunch of Israeli uh, military officers making a show of walking on, you know, like the, 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 the Dome of the Rock or what the Israelis would call the Temple Mount, which is designated Muslim territory. And, you know, it's, it's theoretically by the rules. And he did this as like a show of force to show that he could. And it helps to also know a little bit that Ariel Sharon, he later became Israel's prime minister and fell into a coma and uh, then died. But he, uh, before all that, he was most famous for being the Israeli military leader who was held responsible by the Israelis themselves for the massacre in Lebanon in the early 1980s of thousands of Palestinian refugees, because these were uh, committed by Lebanese uh, militants. And the Israelis, he was the he was the military official who the Israelis determined to let it happen. And mm. so to me, I think one of the things that's uh, sort of, uh, you know, really important to stress is that, like, there is a history to these provocations. Gotcha. You're right that they're provocations. And this is the guy who's responsible. The Israelis determined that this guy was the official responsible for, you know, like for having, you know, like overseen this massacre effectively. And this is the guy, you know, who's who then does this demonstration you know, if you're a Palestinian and you don't have a state, you don't have a vote, you don't really have much control over your life. You, you know, like you don't have basic public services and, and Israel is a modern successful state by, you know, international standards and all that. Um, and, you know, like, like it's, it's, you can sort of like you, these are not like what is happening is not new. Mm -hmm. And what is, what is important though, and what is obviously different this time is that people are now much more open about it and public about what is happening and comfortable describing it as such, which is like, right. you know, I, um, is the thing that gives me like, makes me honestly, like gives me a lot of hope. Um, you know, given how awful things are right there right now, it gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. I, I went to Israel in 2011 as part of like some media tour. I mean, it was, it was frankly like very, like it was propaganda, but I was, you know, it was like an all expense paid thing. Uh, it was pretty, pretty lush, I got to say. But I, you know, it was when I went there. <laughs> that I saw, yeah, it was great. You know, like in Tel Aviv is a good time, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, like you, a lot of good discotheques and shit. And, yeah. But um, I, I like went to the border with Gaza. And I think until I had been there, it all seemed very theoretical. But when you think about a place like Gaza, which is, uh, I believe, like the, you know, the, the third most densely populated place on the world. It's a tiny, tiny little strip of land with like 2 million people essentially locked in there um, with, uh, you know, I remember when I was there, they had just passed uh, a new law that prevented them from even um, going out on little fishing boats uh, farther than like 50 yards or something uh, off the shore. And you, you really get a sense of the 
difference between what is the reality on the ground, which is that this is like a essentially like a military occupation or like a military kind of encampment, essentially. Um, and what is described in of Israel in the Western media is like this kind of open uh, democracy that, you know, has kind of like liberal values and you can be gay and all that stuff. Um, <laughs> and it's that that dichotomy was very striking to me at the time and seeing the the coverage of the events of the past week or so in american media and also the response of a lot of american politicians a lot of them like Demo like you know nancy pelosi just came out with a statement condemning uh hamas terrorists and 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 the rocket fire what do you make of the way israel is portrayed in in the us like in the mainstream us discourse so there's historically the you know I grew up so I'll give a little bit of personal background here uh, um, as as has been uh, I hope established uh, I'm Jewish um, my dad's a rabbi <laughs> um, not the kind with like curls or the black hat um, he's a okay. ordained reform and I grew up in suburban New Jersey and I spent a lot of time in Israel as a teenager I was you know like a big time mm. Zionist and oh man and like, <laughs> nice. oh yeah I mean it's it's birthright it's, did you go to birthright no I was I went to Israel he was just already going of, yeah That's exactly what he's trying to say. Like, it's, it's like <laughs> yeah. I, you know now they let anybody go on birthright because they're desperate but back then I wouldn't be qualified because <laughs> I'd been too much and stuff so like I speak fluent mm, okay. Hebrew and I you know I wanted to live in Israel like when I was like 18 years old like that was like my, my deepest dream and I graduated high school a semester early and I get to Israel and, I, and I'm starting to study at a university there. And it's not a university in Tel Aviv. I'd been to Tel Aviv. I knew Jerusalem. I was in a, I was in a city called Beersheba, which is, you know, not a particularly glamorous city. But the thing that I did learn in my time there um, and, you know, like and, and I went home to college and, and got more left wing and more involved in the issue. But the thing that, like you see, is what I, is, is what you saw, Nando, which is this, you know, there is a reality that once you experience it with like, you know, a certain kind of distance without yeah. a certain kind of framing that's provided for you that you can't deny. So, you know, for me, the moment was, you know, when you see like, like, gee, why are all these like crazy right wingers protesting soldiers who are just talking about like, you know, uh, the, the group breaking the silence, Israeli soldiers who are talking about crimes that they committed themselves. So, right. and you start to, you know, you, you can't stop questioning. And so the reason that like the mainstream discourse doesn't make these things so easy to talk about is because they have a, you know, like if, if, if you want to, you know, there's, a, there's obviously a larger strategic and political agenda of people for whom, you know, Israel and a strong Israel and a powerful Israel is really important. Can we and, get into that at some point? Yeah. Oh, totally. okay. I mean, it's, you know, it's, I mean, the idea is that like we have, I mean, it's, there's credible evidence that the CIA, in fact, it was um, Deputy Director Jim Angleton, full name James Jesus Angleton. He's a weird yeah, looking man. Matt Damon in The Good Shepherd. Yeah, he gotcha. basically passed nuke. He was very close to the Israeli government early on, and it's believed that he assisted Israel in getting a nuclear weapon before anybody else. Like there mm. is a commitment that a lot of people have. You know, I think that you know it, you could call you could like neo-colonialism to use the Ghanaian president Kwame Nkrumah. You know, to use his term for it. Like it, it's representative. Israel is a is is able to 
do a lot of the things militarily in service and influence and was for many years to temper, you know, what was a really scary threat for, you know, the West, which was Arab nationalism for a time. And, you know, these interests yeah. evolved and they change over time. And now Israel is one of the largest purchasers of uh, American weapons. And we give $3.8 million in military aid a year to Israel. But that money isn't just like a blank check to Israel. That money is for Israel to buy American weapons and so on. And then, right. you know, on top of it, and this is where it gets to. So you we know, pay Israel to give to buy weapons from us. Well, we, yeah, no, we get take American taxpayers, taxpayer dollars, give it to oh, the to Israeli private, government, okay, which then yeah. comes back to the shareholders of of weapons Raytheon. manufacturers. Do you right. see how that? It's a transfer of wealth. Gotcha. Yes. From, yes, and and it's important gotcha. here that through, the government gotcha. through. For, gotcha. for a government, you know, for for and this is, you know, like this is, you know, letting you a little in on a little biz secret about how arms trading works. If you want to legally <laughs> buy guns. So let's say you want to buy guns from an American company. You have to go through America. You have to go through the government. So that's why we say things like the United States sells, you know, like, right. like, like, like stuff to Saudi Arabia. Right. Because obviously the United States is not necessarily all on its lonesome manufacturing the weapons. They do mm. some of that themselves, but they're these corporations. And so that's, you know, that is one example. It's a specific and it's a big one. It's not the only, but it's obviously one important example of, you know, why we are so committed to supporting Israel in the dogmatic way that we are. And as to the, you know, your, your original question about the media, you know, I grew up in this environment where there was this whole ecosystem where I never really had to learn about what Palestinians had to say for their own experiences. I had a version, you know, a very sophisticated version that was, you know, the product of Israeli government propaganda. And I'm not saying that as a conspiracy theory thing. They have ministries devoted to this effort specifically. Um, yeah, I, I went on a free yeah, trip. Exactly. I mean, I it's, it's hotels. Yeah, I'm not saying. Yeah, it's it's they. You know, it, it, it's 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 a you know, and American Jews. I think because you know, this is you see groups like if not now, obviously, um, like a, the progressive group, they sort of speak to this sense. But there is also just a fact that like, um, as as you know, like Jews, young Jews especially, like encounter the the world outside this propaganda, it only increases the effort of you know these groups to ramp it up. And so you have these really sophisticated and strong, you know, methods like, you know, birthright and so on that are meant to, you know, get young Jews to keep being Jewish. And like, you know, the easiest way to do an easy way to do that for a lot of people, a lot of Jews made, you know, like, I don't think it's like they made a decision, you know, they made a, a single choice or anything like that. But ultimately, you know talking about how we suffered during the Holocaust, talking about how we have this amazing outpost that we need to support called Israel, and that it's an easy way to be Jewish, is to do that, because nobody wants to go to synagogue anymore, just like people don't go to church anymore. Jews right. are just like Christians, you know, like it's, it's we, you know, so it's another way to be Jewish. And, and that is a hard thing for a lot of people, you know, it's a hard thing to let go of is a big idea. I mean, it's, it's an identity, you know, and, and, right. and, and, and that obviously, you know, given the fact that like Jews have succeeded and that we are part of a, you know, like, and that there are a lot of people who have both pro-Israel politics and also people who are naturally sympathetic, sympathetic towards Israel in the media. Um, you know, it's a, it's a frame of bias it, just as there is any other. And I think that like, it's what, you know, we are now starting to see that crack because there's, you know, more people like me who uh, and also more Palestinians finally who are getting recognition and the opportunity to like talk about this stuff from their perspective and to present the story from their angles. So, right. man, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said there. Uh, one. So if I'm reading it correctly, you're saying part of Jewish identity 
um, is a support of the concept of Israel and its existence in its current form. Right, but this is a catch-22, because if you say that Jews are acting with a dual loyalty, then that would be anti-Semitic. So yeah, I, don't yeah. even know, like, I don't even know what that means. Yeah, yeah. So it's like there, there's like a there is a pre. That's what Ilan Omar got dinged yes, on. Exactly. Yeah. So like there is a pre-existing kind of like rhetoric that is like makes it difficult for when you start to unpack this stuff, which is to say, wow, like that American Jews can't be good Americans because they're so obsessed with Israel. Is that yeah, like the? And that's but that's what that is what somebody would say you're accusing them of. And okay. I don't and, I, and I'm not getting a strong. I mean, who would man. even say that? That's the <laughs> thing. You, you say that there are a lot of people who lack shame in this world. <laughs> no, I'm meaning who's the person that's saying. Like, we got to get Jews out of America because their loyalty is really with Israel. Like, who's I've never heard that before. Not not that it matters what I've ever heard, but I'm trying to figure out who would be the person peddling that as an idea or is that some type of slur towards Jewish well, Americans? I mean, th now this is where it gets really important, I think, to talk about, like, you know, what does it mean that we live in a time with, like, rising anti-Semitism or whatever? And how does that figure in? Because more than ever, people are talking about anti-Semitism as something that scares them. And, you know, rightfully so in the sense that, like, never in our lifetime, certainly, has you have you ever had, like, anti-Semitic discourse, like, publicly, like, anti-Jewish, specifically, like, you know, discourse, like, anywhere resembling the mainstream. At the same time, though, it's like we got to be smart about it. Like, does that mean that, like, you know, like, like, Kristallnacht is coming? No. It means that, like, we should have a conversation about, like, well, hold on. What does anti-Jewish bigotry resemble? Because you made this really good point in an earlier conversation I think we had before the mic went on about how how so often stereotypes of Jews just look like the inverse of black people, of stereotypes of black people. And it's like, oh, like all of a sudden, I think you start to see like that mirror image getting uh, projected there. And you see that like there is this, uh, you know, like a, 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 a kind of um, reflexive associate, like a, a kind of sense of like constant aggrievement that there were always under threat that like this, you know, renewed discourse kind of uh, promotes, that it allows right. people to feel. It's a false sense of danger. And that to me is like where things start to get a little bit complicated and just even trying to talk about these issues. And I think that, you know, okay. like for listeners and people listening, you know, I think there's a, the, like the, you know, like asking questions will never, you know, will almost never get you in trouble. And if it does get you in, not. and if it, and if it does get you in trouble. Those people are idiots. There you go. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It worked for me. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's uh, I think it's worth maybe for uh, listeners at home who are seeing all this, like, I mean, not to get like into a full kind of history uh, lesson and go way too into weeds. Wait, but, like, before, discuss, before we before yeah. we do that, I, I wanted to because yeah, I yeah. do want to get into some history, too. But I do want to do because it's something that <laughs> it's something that I've seen a lot on the Internet in the last two days because I happen to follow a few Israelis. I'm surprised by this. And. You wouldn't be surprised. They live over there. And so what they're sharing online is a very specific thing, right? I mean, so it's what what is, you know, when I, so that city that I lived in, in the middle of nowhere, in the desert in Israel, called Beersheba, it's within range of the rockets that Hamas was firing at the time. So I actually had the experience a couple times of going out and, um, you know, like I would be in class or I would be at the dorm. And oh, there's an air raid siren, and we go to the shelter. You go to the 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 um, you go to the stairs, and the rocket would invariably hit like a you know like some empty space, or you know maybe it would kill like in the off chance you know kill somebody like you know a construction worker or somebody you know in the wrong place. But the thing is that what's happening now 
is that the rockets that I experienced are now coming at a larger distance and they are reaching across the country. Like they're reaching like the met the, the real metropolitan heart of Israel. Mm. And you are also now having these rockets, you know, they are, um, Israel created this system called Iron Dome that America paid for that is supposed to intercept these rockets. And it is, you know, to like an honest assessment of how successful it is, it's hard to come by. And, but the point being is that like Israelis have been, you know, for a long time, they have been, have been caught between this place of understanding that like, there is a way in which like this mortal, this mortal danger could, you know, one day come and, and we have to take it seriously. And that's the basis for talking, you know, making our case for why us and not the Palestinians to the world and so on. But at the same time, it's also been like a lot of hubris. And what's happening in Israel now, the awful sight of seeing cars explode and rockets hitting, you know, people's homes and the, and the real terror that people are feeling it like it, it comes like it, it's a it is an awful thing that is happening. That is like a it is just such a direct consequence that everybody has been talking about for mm. so long. And it's, you know, a, a you know, it's a reality that I know. And, you know, I, I think that like the, you know, a, Israelis are, you know, it's, 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 this is why it's so important that really recently, you know, Human Rights Watch um, and others have come out and explicitly called Israel an apartheid state because yeah. it's like, it, it then reframes it, right? Because if you go back to the 1980s, well, how do we deal with South Africa? We boycotted it, we divested money from it, and we sanctioned it, you know, the BDS movement like we have now. And if we are calling Israel an apartheid state, then all of a sudden, like, it becomes a lot clearer to, you know, see what this is. And to see that, like, oh, these rocket attacks are like the natural consequence of what that's happens. What, that's what I was going to say. I want down. you to contextualize when somebody says seven hundred rocket strikes into Israel. Can you contextualize that in, like, okay, like yeah. there's seven hundred rocket strikes, and this is what a rocket strike can kind of do. And then there's Israel's um, regime and government and killing machine and what they're able to do. Right. So it's, it's, we should note that at the time of this recording, we don't know what the Israel is going, what Israel is going to do in Gaza um, in terms of boots on the ground um, or anything like that yet. Israel is generally very hesitant to commit ground forces because historically it has not gone well for them. They don't accomplish any of their strategic objectives, um, especially since the, you know, they really fucked up in 2006 when they invaded Southern Lebanon. And I think the like, you know, the, the thing that we're sort of seeing now, though, is this battle of air power. And it's, well, what is this air power? And you have the Palestinians and you know, Hamas is firing, for example, um, and Islamic Jihad, which is like a, a, the, like a, 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 a separate but related militant wing. Um, and, you know, they're firing most commonly Katusha rockets, which, you know, you, the, the listener can Google. And they look like a sort of modified, but still very deadly version of like the rockets that you may have set off in the park when you were a kid. Um, right. Whereas what Israel is shooting back and they're fucking deadly. Like, I don't mean to like, you know, like they're like, I don't mean right. to say that as like, but it's, but it's what they are. They're home. They, they like, you and would look what at they that, have. Yeah. That's what exactly. they have. Yeah. Because they live under a blockade. So right. then you have on the other and and to be clear, the Gazan border with Egypt, some might say, well, hold on. Israel's not in on that side. It's even worse than the border with Israel. In, in a lot of ways, in most ways, in fact, because the Egyptian ruler Sisi is quite brutal and the Israelis and Egyptians uh, border patrols uh, like are effectively competing to kill the number of African migrants who are trying to escape into there. So there it's not like any friendly. But anyway, so like um, 
<laughs> lost my train of thought there. <laughs> no, the um, the air power of the Israelis. Yes, the air power of the Israelis. Then, if you if you look at the Israeli uh, air power of the Israelis, it's you know we're talking about missiles that can take out entire buildings. I mean, don't let your eyes you know like your eyes are not deceiving you when you see that video in the feed. You know, like that is a missile hitting a building where civilians certainly are. Like it's it's a dense it's a densely populated place, and even if it's a military target, we are blowing it up anyway. These are the same exact things that, you know, when the American military was doing it in Vietnam, we had people all out in the streets in D.C. And it's not just in Palestine, right. obviously, that it's happening. This happens in a lot of places around the world. But right now, our eyes are trained on here. And, and you know, we, it's, it's, you know, Mike Bloomberg once famously said that, you know, when, when talked about, you know, the question of proportionality, you know, if somebody comes at you with a knife, would it be wrong to shoot them with a gun? And that's the analogy that he makes. And like, right. you know, with all disrespect to Mike Bloomberg, like that's totally fucked <laughs> up. It's actually like, you know, it's not somebody coming at you with a knife. It's somebody on a fence across the way from town trying to use a knife to cut through the fence while you use a bazooka to blow them up from the comfort of your living room. Right. And, and you know, like that, yeah. that is like what we're seeing now is the collapsing of that distance somewhat. Like, I'm not trying to minimize that, mm. but like that is like the, that is where the power lies in this situation. Got you. Yeah. I remember Owen Jones wrote uh, like many years ago that, you know, when when the media can talks about these things as kind of clashes or uh, some sort of dispute between two equal powers that's like describing uh mike tyson fighting a toddler as a clash yes. you know that it's like that the power disparity is so great but but it's really that, important i think there is one i want to interrupt just to say one thing because i think yeah. that like there is and i have totally fallen into this tendency myself especially for outsiders to look at the situation and to look at the people and to and to see to, and to using that baby analogy like you know kind of like remove some agency of the or, or action of the palestinians here because I think what, yeah. you know, what is the specific, you know, if there's any, like, I, you know, I'm not the guy to ask about what's, you know, what's coming next. Nobody knows that. But like, if there is a thing that we can take away as like a single lesson, it's that like, you can never, ever discount like Palestinians, you know, fighting for their own liberation. Because the only reason that we are talking about this, the only reason that we are drawing attention to this is because when the Israeli government tried to, you know, like turn up the heat on them, they fought back. And that, you know, right. it's it's that's what solidarity means. Right. It's not about like being mealy mouth like, oh, well, you know, we have to know it's saying, no, 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 no. These are people fighting back. And, you know, like loss, mm. like like this is a tragedy and it's awful. But if we're going to talk about how we got to this point, then, you know, we shouldn't tell any lies. Right. Well, maybe maybe we should talk about how we got to this point, because I think that the uh, you know, again, not to not to do like a full on history show or anything like that. But I, I just think it's just not well known at all in 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 regular people's lives just how how we got here how the state of israel was founded in the 1940s and like kind of what it came out of and 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 what was the situation um for palestinians when that happened and could, could you just like talk a little bit about like a brief overview uh of just how we got to the world in which we all grew up right we're all kind of right you know, so 30s i think or 20s you know um, so I think yeah. a, a good place to start, just like very roughly, um, and I think I can do a pretty okay speed run of this. A good place to start is in the late 19th century when you have the first wave, uh, or what's called the first Aliyah, the first wave of Jewish immigration to, you know, historic Palestine. 
And these are people who are ideologically committed to going to what is, you know, the biblical Jewish homeland and, you know, like settling it and, and building it and so on. And their reasons are varied. And there's a second wave of immigration that's much larger that has more to do with the question of anti-Semitism. But there is, you know, a, a, a tradition and a legacy of Zionism and Jews going to, you know, like going back to reclaim the land in, um, you know, this, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century. And in 1917, the Jews get this declaration from the British government that says, we're going to give you a state. And then after World War II, when the horrors of the Holocaust become known, and after an intense period of Jewish and like, like, you know, like, like Jewish and Arab clashes, um, you know, like the traditional version of the story only talks about Arab attacks on the British and how horrible they were, while minimizing the very real uh, and live role of Jewish terrorists who would go on to become democratically elected leaders of the country. And so by 1948, what happens is there's a UN vote. And for a number of different reasons, like like it passes the pressure of the Holocaust and what to do about the quote unquote Jewish question is a real one. Um, Stalin is, you know, has his own pragmatic reasons for siding with it. My point being that it wasn't because the whole world got together and decided the Jews deserve a state, the Palestinians don't. Because what the UN approved was called a partition plan. And the partition plan was affected. And what Israel did and, you know, Arab, you know, uh, you know, uh, Arab armies and his, and the then you know then newly formed Israeli army, the the Hag formed out of what was called the Haganah, um, come into being. And what you have is you know framed as a war for independence, and it is a war that causes tremendous loss. I think something like one percent of Israel's civilian population dies. But what happens is that the partition plan, which you can Google, you know anybody can Google 1947 partition plan, and then Google the 1948 borders, Israel conquered an enormous amount of territory, excluding the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And in the process of conquering all of that land in 1948 and stopping at the border of the West Bank, which is a non-Jewish settled entirely uh, area at that point, they said, we're not, we're, not, we, we're not going any further here, the battle lines, and they're the Jordanian soldiers on the other side, um, and, and, and Israelis are here. And there are Palestinian citizens of Israel, the people who live within those 1948 uh, borders and who are Palestinian and who stayed, become, many of them become Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, but, you know, that is not the experience of the majority who are um, like in this, you know, uh, who are displaced. Um, and you have the beginnings of what's called the refugee crisis. You know, what Israelis call the war for Israeli independence, Palestinians remember as the Nakba or catastrophe. And it's because the Nakba was, you know, this mass displacement, and 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 really, there were ma there, there were massacres, there were killings of civilians, villages well, before, that were cleared you, out. Before you go on, Noah, I just mm -hmm. want to just just so we're catching up. Yeah, yeah, um, please. That area of the world got chosen because it's just traditionally, um, a holy land. No, it's you know, this is it's. There is because that's always because I mean, so, no, it's I mean, it's important because I'm gonna, Zion, I'm gonna out my dad right now, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna out my dad as a weirdo. He's like, Well, how <laughs> could the Jews have claimed that land to belong to them? He said, Where's the deed? That's what my dad always says. Where's the show me the deed that says this land was promised or whatever to the Jews? Like, why this specific part of the world? It's funny because the only people more obsessed than it sounds like than your dad with this stuff are the Israelis themselves, because they I mean, they have like part of, you know, it's part and parcel with the settlement uh, project and these housing evictions. 
They also, uh, you know, in Jerusalem, for example, they also coincide with archaeological excavations under Palestinian homes because they want to see if they can go back in time deep enough to, you know, find the original Jewish kingdom, the Ir David, the city of David. Wow. And, you know, okay. the historical, the, 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 you know, there were, you know, Jews, Judeans, um, people who practiced Judaism, Judaism, as you would call it. You know, this is where Christianity comes from in this place. That were already there before 1947 and 1948. Yes. And there were people okay. who, the small population that had existed throughout the thousands of years, but, you know, Jews and, and part of what is, you know, like the Jews that you know and what it means to be in the Jewish diaspora is this experience of uh, the Hebrew word for it is galut, um, you know, like uh, the nice way, diaspora, the bad way, exile. And the idea mm. is that the Jews have been exiled. We've been exiled from our homeland for 2000 years. And this is, you know, part of Jewish religious, right. you know, liturgy. You know, when you when we when we when we uh, rise up to pray towards the Torah, we face east towards Jerusalem. And in the 19th century, as nationalism became the way that people, you know, like great powers were arranging the world. Uh, right. Zionism emerges, you know, uh, from the mind of this guy, Theodore, uh, from from the mind of this guy, Theodore Herzl, I mean, is the most famous, as he's just one of, but the most famous uh, argument of it as a way to say, hey, listen, I just saw the Dreyfus affair in France. It was really fucked up. They hate the Jews here. And why don't the Jews get their own nation? This is not somebody who ever ended up going to Palestine. He, you know, like he, he was not like he, he was a, a journalist and a thinker, not a doer. But ultimately, there were doers. And the idea and the utility of Zionism grows and grows and grows. But it is not until after the Holocaust that even the majority of Americans are Zionists. In fact, the reform movement until like, you know, the late 1940s was not Zionist. It was not like these were there was not a consensus around this. But then the Holocaust happened. And there also began the question of decolonization. And the British were going to have to retreat from this place. And, you know, Israel is not actually just a white country in a conventional sense. Most Israelis uh, come from, you know, Morocco, Iraq, Yemen, um, you know, uh, or, or they came later from Russia as well, meaning that they weren't all just, you know, white Europeans then. And um, but so it's not just so easy to say that they wanted to rely on white people, um, which is sometimes what people say. And is I just think a little bit reductive because I think what's more helpful and more important is to say that, you know, from Israel's inception, it was way more amenable and cooperative and useful as an ally for the Western powers than any Arab country that would have taken its gotcha. place would have been. And gotcha. so there's a real, you know, that is like the kind of, you know, there isn't, it's, there, there, there is like just a historical record that bears that out pretty cleanly. The Western powers saw it as advantageous to have ostensibly, you know, Jewish whites, Europeans over there because they would be more amenable to the agenda of the Western powers. And these were people who saw the world similarly. They weren't, right. you know, like they came they, from the same places. They came from and, Europe. Yeah, cetera, and, and, and on top of it, they're also, you know, Israel, it's not, you know, it's not going totally Soviet. And it's hmm. not, go, you know, and, and, and in time, though, Very always important. <laughs> but here's the really important thing. And then a really great moment that sort of shows this is in 1956, which is the Suez Canal crisis, when, you know, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who is the, you know, ascendant nationalist leader of Egypt, nationalizes the Suez Canal, says, we're fucking Egypt. This is our land. What the fuck yeah. do the British and Fr why do the British and French yeah. control this? So we're taking it over. And the British and French, with the assistance of the Israelis, try to take it back. 
Eisenhower was not consulted on this, and the American government is furious. And the American says, we're not going to fucking assist you. So the Suez crisis um, becomes what's in the Israeli memory. It's, it's part of this thing called the war of attrition. But it's this really great example of like, oh, this is a clear cut example of how Israel did certain like the Israeli government and, you know, like like this, like like these bad things that they did why they were tolerated because it's, you know, it, yeah. it served the purpose of it's some served. powers. And then the next, you know, critical year uh, would be 1967. Yeah. I think that that's an important point because I think that the, um, uh, the sort of general uh, understanding of why the United States and Israel have a special relationship is because of this thing called APAC, which is the Israeli lobby and that they have a lot of money and that they use that to buy politicians. But I think that that kind of, that kind of, in a way, lets American politicians off the hook or the American state, American empire off the hook in that it's like kind of like a tail wagging the dog situation where like, you know, at the end of the day, the American, America is more powerful even than Israel. So like, um, it's not like it, it doesn't make sense that some tiny little country is, you know, controlling um, the American state. Like, so what is the, like, you know, expand on that, that uh, this idea that, of like Israel serving the purposes of American empire, not the other way around. I mean, there's a bunch of different, I think, sort of smaller examples that like the most recent of which, like, they, they, I mean, there are too many to count, but obviously I think the best and easiest to understand would be that Israel was the key cog in the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian military commander that mm. Trump decided to blow up. And so when it comes to the American war against Iran, and when it comes to America's presence or interest in the Syrian civil war, the presence of Israel is effectively a guarantor that there is a friendly neighboring power that has the ability to provide, you know, useful things. And that is, you know, independent from, you know, ties of trade um, and intellectual property and also unrelated to actual, you know, human to human ties that don't get enough scrutiny. Like, for example, Ehud Barak, who was uh, an Israeli prime minister for the Labour Party, a center left figure, um, and who then became a defense minister later on, a former general. Uh, he was in Jeffrey Epstein's black book and was, you know, went over to his townhouse <laughs> all the time. And, um, you know, I Quirky. think that there is like a yeah, of course. But it's it's a way of Everyone saying. Everyone was with Epstein. It's crazy. Ex yeah. So I'm mad I didn't it's, get an invite. Yeah. <laughs> are you yeah. though? Are you though? <laughs> <laughs> what gives? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Chris, I watched Rush he Hour. He was just on the ringer. I just watched <laughs> Rush Hour yesterday. Oh, wait, he was. No, 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 no. Oh, no, no, fuck. No, no, no. I, oh, God. I was like, no, I just, because I, I was watching Rush Hour, though, and I was like, damn, what happened to Chris Tucker? And then I remembered Epstein playing. I was like, ah. Right. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, Ehud Barak is, yeah, you know, right. he is a powerful and influential guy who I'm not using to say is like, and thus, you know, no, 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 puppet control. No, it's that like, he represents the fact that like, they're like the power, the the class of people with power in Israel are, you know, like hand and glove part of the same class of people that have power in the US that have same class, you know, it's 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 the yeah. same we're we're all you know, it's I think it's it's a great reminder that we're all fighting the same struggle. And you know, to your point right. about APAC, you know, these groups are very effective, believe me. Like Ilhan Omar had to spend like there has never been more money spent in a democratic primary than the one that she had to spend off um for a race like it. Or there's some I'm I'm sure like I forget what the exact number is, but I mean, we're talking like an insane amount of money for a congresswoman who won re-election with like, you know, an insane by an insane margin in that primary. And it's useless right. dollars that is all pro-Israel money. So the money is still there and it's still very real. And they're able to deploy it quite effectively. APAC itself does not make contributions. They're very careful and they talk about how they don't do that. 
they're like a 501c3. They're effectively a nonprofit. But the Israel lobby is a real thing. But I think, you know, your point, it's important to sort of ask, well, then what is a lobby, right? Because a lobby is just anything that is like, you know, represents an interest in exchange for money. And what the Israel lobby is, is not like, you know, a grand conspiracy. And it is not like, you know, it's like the tobacco lobby. It's like the gun lobby. It is a wide away array of interests. It includes media. It includes think tanks. It includes all sorts of different things that you would ordinarily stuff into that hole. And it's part of it. They represent an interest for money. Yeah. And there are ideological motivations of the people doing it in D.C., of course, and not to discount that. But, you know, it pays. It's a racket. It's yeah. a good gig. <laughs> people get fed. And there's not that's yeah. not something to be discounted. And when you look at lobbies in general and you look at how people try to purchase political influence, you know, it's it's not a one time thing. There's a, these faucets are meant to keep running. Mm. Right. Damn. Man, that was so fucking amazing. We don't have a lot more of your time, so I did want to get into uh, the the Cuba pod because, like I said at the top of the show, so much of like you said it in the episode. Well, I don't know if it was you or your partner who said it in the episode. Well, we're actually living history right now. Yeah, that's and I Brendan. Think, I'll give him credit for that. One. And and I and I think you you guys are doing an effective job of marrying like this is what happened in the past and this is why this shit still matters. There's one fucking through line throughout the entire thing. So can you talk to us about why Cuba? So season 2. Totally. So Cuba is also you kind of looking like Shay Guevara right now. Oh my god! Don't get you don't need to gas me like that, man. I'm gonna fucking like I, like the the hair like I, I I have all of these amazing like photo books of like you know of of you know Cubans and stuff and right. you know, the, like the Barbudos, the Rebels in the Mountains, and I've had a beard for like what five years now, and every time I see it, it's like I could go extra. I could like. I could do that. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's like, like I have to relegate that to the same part of my brain that put an offer in on a, on a tan knit Kangol this morning. Like I got to just like, I just got to hope that it doesn't actually go there. Um, we chose Cuba because Cuba is like, it is, it is not like our longest war. It's not our most vicious war, but Every single like tool that America has in its arsenal to try and fuck up a country is present in what America policy towards Cuba is. And the incredible thing about Cuba is that they outlasted it. Cuba is not a perfect country, but it was a revolution that was sought. You know, they sought it in favor of a radical program to kind of create an alternative to the neo-colonial structure being set up in Latin America by the U.S. and allied interests at that time. And that meant land reform. It meant literacy campaigns. It meant, it meant bringing medicine to people who would have never otherwise in their lives expected to see a dentist, let alone get treated for Damn. things like the parasites on their feet. And so to me, it's yeah. like, you know, we chose Cuba because in America, the story that I just told you, that even basic elevator pitch framing, you never hear it. And not only do no. you not hear it, it continues to this day in a surreal, uh, awful way in, th in the form of this embargo that has been in place since John F. Kennedy initiated it in 1962 that is pointlessly destructive and only continues to exist to, I guess, relate it to what we were talking about earlier in part because there is a Cuba lobby that is just like the Israel lobby that is also yeah. incredibly well-fed, except it's even Tons more well-fed 
by the by the U.S. government directly. Millions of yeah. dollars a year are spent on Cuban propaganda, anti sorry anti Cuban government propaganda sourced from Miami that nobody in Cuba listens to, nobody cares about, but continues to get paid a bunch of excited right wingers in Florida who then wield a disproportionate influence in our national election. I don't think that Cuba policy is, you know, we can trace it as the root of all of things, but Cuba policy in the story of Cuba has a lot of explanatory power from everything for the, from the JFK assassination all the way up to the 2000 election. It's, you know, you ask why Cuba, yeah. my answer, how could I not? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I grew up in, in Miami, Florida. I was born and raised in the County Dade, uh, 305 till I die, all that shit. Um, so I am steeped in in what you just talked about the the power of the of the political organization of the cuban american community in miami um you know largely cuban exiles um and then but I'm, my family is originally from spain and i would spend a lot of time in spain when i was growing up and it was like whiplash you know talking about cuba or hearing people talk about cuba outside of the united states i'm not talking about like left-wing people just normal regular old people when they think about cuba they think more about the story that you told of like um this was a uh like a social revolution and uh they've been the united states has been trying to crush them forever um and they've kind of outlasted him and good for them um whereas in in america the story is more like these dastardly it was like a military coup by like some left-wing uh you know violent people who then murdered, you know, tens of thousands of I don't, people. I don't even think that's the story, kind of, Nando. I think it's just Castro's an evil guy who somehow managed evil, to wrangle like, power from the benevolent um, moneyed interests that were running Cuba yeah. before. And now he's ruined the... So what you hear, what you hear a lot from, especially like first-gen Cubans who have been propagandized by their parents... Um, and by the way, Nando was the first person. Nando's taught me a lot, by the way, in the short time that I've known him. But he was, I was like, so who, like, who are the Cubans that were able to make it to America? Like, who <laughs> were a, they? That is, that is the $64,000 question. Who were they? Yeah. And how come they got to leave or had the means and wherewithal to get out of there? And these other people didn't. And Nando was like, well, obviously they were the people that had the money. They had the means. They could get the fuck out of there. It was like, hold on, this is getting crazy. Let's get the hell out of Dodge. I mean, um, we, we go into the details on that in our show, but there's one thing I do want to highlight from it. That's like a great example of it. Yes. You know, like there, 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 you know, there is a group of people who were Americanized, you know, like gangsters and, you know, corrupted and uh, corrupt officials and, you know, their American patsies and all the, you know, all, all these like nasty interests that have been running Cuba. And when, is, when the revolution when the revolution happened and the revolution said, we're not doing business with you. Sorry. Like all of the people who had a stake in that kind of society left simultaneously there began as the character of the revolution. Because remember when Fidel, like in 1959, the beginning of the year, you know, the famous scene at the end of the Godfather part two, um, yeah, yeah. you know, when Fidel takes power at the beginning of 59, later that year, he goes to America. And he goes to America and he goes on, I believe he goes on Ed Sullivan. Eisenhower snubs him. Nixon meets him, which, you know, unpleasant. But, you know, he's not considered <laughs> this persona non grata yet. Why? Mm -hmm. And it's because everybody, you know, whoa, amazing, so cool, exciting. Batista was, was terrible, all this. You know, the mob interests, all these people, they wanted to get in with the revolution. They were spurned. And so as it became clear that the revolution, while not ever declaring itself or marking it as, so, as as socialist, although there were communists in the leadership, like Fidel's brother Raul, 
um, you had it moving in a direction that was, you know, un, un, you know, un, like the, that the Americans immediately had to start trying to wind back. And so what that meant was that you had all sorts of operations to both get Cubans out so that they could train immediately, you know, as early as 19, mm. in the beginning of 1960 to try and have an exile group go after um, the, you know, retake Cuba, similar to what the U.S. had done in Guatemala. And then second, you also have these other more underhanded efforts, the most famous of which is what's called Operation Peter Pan or Operation Pedro Pan, which was a yeah. CIA originated operation where they blasted out propaganda to convince people that their children would be taken from them and forcibly relocated into Soviet-style re-education uh, places, away from their families. And ironically enough, what ended up happening was that these parents were separated from their children because they sent them to the U.S. to try and escape this totalitarianism. And we actually interview uh, one of the people who, uh, you know, was separated like this. And, you know, the conventional yeah. story of Peter Pan is, oh, my God, these children rescued from yeah. their parents. And, you know, many, many parents, have, many, many of these kids have grown up to say such a thing. However, I knew I knew I knew a few of them. Uh, yeah, it's, growing up. But it's it's there yeah. is a, you know, from the time the, uh, you know, the American exile community, the Cuban American exile community got growing in, 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 in America. It was organized by the American government to be yeah. something to like to be a force to be instrumentalized against Castro. You know, uh, one person that I interviewed, he talked about how, you know, he, you know, like how did he, he did not. He, he's a Cuban American, but he did not. He grew up in, in California. And I was like, okay, how did you grow up in California? All the Cubans grew up in Florida. And he was like, when we got to immigration, you know, the immigration officials said, you can go anywhere you want, but you cannot go to Miami. And so my mother, she didn't want to go to Miami anyway, because she wanted to get as far away from her mother-in-law. So we went to California. <laughs> Sorry. And I bring up that, I bring up that instruction from the uh, American official about like anywhere but Miami because the American government knew what they were doing. They were taking a bunch of the upper class, the exiles, they were juicing them up on counter revolution, promising to, you know, get them back in their country. And, you know, the spirit of those promises, while never actually successfully acted upon, has lived on for 60 years in the form of all of these crazy things like the embargo to these pointless propaganda outfits based in yeah. Miami, funded by the American government still. When I when I talk to people about Cuba, I mean the 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 thing to understand about the Cuban Revolution is that it's it's helpful to see it as really a uh, a second war, like a war of independence from the United States. That the United States was the de facto. It wasn't technically the colonial ruler of of Cuba. It wasn't like a Puerto Rico situation, but it was the de facto colonial ruler of Cuba, and that the 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 Revolution Fifty Nine was basically a war of independence, and that to understand the so-called like the quote-unquote flaws of the Castro regime in power, like, you know, suspending civil liberties and, you know, you know, there's not as free of a press as, as in other places and things like that, um, is to understand a society that is a, a, a tiny island nation, which was poor and isolated, that is under attack by the most powerful country in the history of the universe, um, and that has had its ec economy essentially blockaded from the rest of the world by this most powerful nation in the history of the universe. And that in that context, they have achieved incredible things while suspending certain civil liberties that we in the United States take for granted. Um, like if you, uh, until you understand it in that context, not as like, you know, the, the cartoon villainy of, of the Castro regime, which when I growing up in Miami, like, often gets compared to Hitler, 
You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, like, we, we made the, which the first anti-Semitism in the in the first episode of the second season. There's a little surprise for those of you catch waiting to hear that comparison. My, my yeah. man, um, my man Dan Lebatar, he often says that's that's our Hitler. I'm like, damn, yeah, which is just like a crazy. <laughs> it's just like it's absolutely like it's like yeah, that's not a you know because it's, like it's offensive in a way. I mean, um, it's but yeah. it's you know I, I think that there is a. You know, and this is where it's important, right? Because it's like, well, people are going to say, well, it's complicated. And in Cuba, they don't have democracy and, and all these things. And, you know, not dissimilar to Israel-Palestine. You have a situation where, like, sure, like, like you're right. Like, perhaps it is not as easy to be trans in Gaza City as it is in, you know, like, uh, like in Thousand, mm. in Thousand Oaks, California. Um, <laughs> like, I, you know, like, I, I like, I'm not going to fucking argue that. What I will absolutely contest, however, is where the responsibility lies and the capacity to change that lies. Because again, it's like, you know, Cuba, all of when in, in the 1990s, when there was this last, you know, like big people criticized this big slide toward repression and all that, you know, what happened was that the Soviet Union dissolved. And so overnight, yeah. Cuba lost its biggest trading partner. And this is a country that has no, very, you know, it's as limited natural resources. And all of a sudden, the imports that it needs, it cannot get. And because the American embargo is still in place, um, you know, Cuba can't do official business with our yeah. allies. And so they're, that's when you, you know, to see the rafts. Exactly. You know, like, I remember I grew up, I was 10, 10 years old in 1995. Like that's when the rafts were coming, you know, and, and, and it was seen as like, look, they're, they're escaping towards freedom. And it's like, no, you're imposing misery <laughs> on this, on these people, you know? And, and um, it's, and it's also important to note that like the rafts and things, you know, in the 1990s, for example, there's a wonderful movie on Netflix called the wasp network directed I by Oliver. It, yeah. yeah. And you know, it has like a, a, a watch staggering. It has a staggering cast, but one of the things that it does that's yeah, really Anna important, Darmus. and and Penelope <laughs> Cruz, don't forget, um, could never forget the <laughs> the thing that like struck like you know really struck me was how that it did really well was you know one of the guys that they talk about who's in the movie is he's a you know he's a real guy um, played by somebody else, but Jose Basulto, who was in who was part of the Bay of Pigs, was a terrorist effectively for the U.S. government. And then in the movie, he is, you know, later on, he has, you know, he has done well in Miami society. And now he runs this, um, this, uh, this uh, group called Brothers to the Rescue. And Gloria Estefan, you know, donated planes for them oh, to yeah. go rescue and spot people in rafts. And now I want to be clear, the American Coast Guard has never had any issues uh, securing our border with Cuba. I want to make that clear. There's not a problem yeah. where these rafts needed extra attention, I think, that the Brothers to the Rescue could do. What it was able to do was that these people were able to drop leaflets over Havana, get one of their planes shot down after repeated threats of violating Cuban airspace by the Cuban government. And in so doing, you know, like, you know, increase the cycle of violence. So there's also right. a way in which these sob stories that we are presented with, in which, again, are tragedies. Like, you know, I'm not you're not going to show me a like, you know, a half dead kid on a raft and tell me that it's not a sad thing. But the yeah. re like the, 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 they are part of a process that is also simultaneously at the end of it, not only manufacturing propaganda, but as ended up happening in the 1990s, you know, leads to the passage of legislation co-authored by Jesse fucking Helms who was <laughs> one of the top two or three most racist people in the 20th century Congress. Um, you know, like, you know, they get a Jesse Helms authored bill, you know, tightening, you know, like in tightening sanctions on Cuba. And there's a real, you know, it's, it's, it's important to know that like when people say it's complicated and they point to this stuff, that that is part of the whole, you know, that's part of the whole trick. It's as it is with any other issue when they're talking to you about black lives matter or Palestine or something. It's like, this is, a, it's a fake appeal to nuance. That's not what they're asking for. Right. 
They're asking for an exit from the conversation because you just brought up some real shit. Hey, man, Noah, this was fucking incredible. I don't think anybody who's listening to this shit is not going to be subscribing to to your uh, blowback podcast. Please. Please. I'll give the quick details and dirty on how to do that. Stitcher. We're on Stitcher Premium. And the way to get a free five weeks of premium listening, which means you'll get to listen to the rest of our run. Uh, we're going to be coming out into week six, I think, by the time this airs or seven. Um, you go to Stitcher.com in your browser. You can do this on your phone, but you got to use your browser. Select. Uh, go to Stitcher.com slash premium. Select a monthly plan and uh, enter the code blowback. And mm. you'll get five weeks. It'll actually say you get a week, but it's a glitch with their system. You're only supposed to get a month. It turns out you get five <laughs> weeks. So, and then that also gives you, we have some exclusive bonus episodes and there are going to be more bonus episodes coming out as well. So Wait. I promise it'll be Plus worth season it. season one, which is about the Iraq war, which yes. again, you know, for those of us in, in my generation, like I remember I that shit. <laughs> you know, they talk about the Trump is fascism and like January 6th. No, 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 no. America in 2002 was the closest. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. One, I remember the 12009 bumper stickers. I was there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, uh, blood, uh, blood for oil. That sounds like a good trade. You know, like that's, I remember that shit. <laughs> um, you know, like, uh, no, yeah. Listen to Blowback, season one about Iraq, season two yes. about Cuba. Both of them, um, just, you know, like essential listening, I, I say. I recommend it to everyone. So, uh, no, I really, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks Noah, for having me. Thank you, brother. Thank you. And wait to talk soon. Here's a snippet from Blowback Season 2. Fidel Castro goes to Harlem. In September of 1960, Fidel Castro touched down in New York City. He was there to participate in the upcoming United Nations General Assembly. The U.S. government, which was less than four months away from severing all diplomatic ties with Cuba, gave Fidel tight restrictions on where he was and was not allowed to go. Secretary of State Christian Herter instructed him not to leave the island of Manhattan. Of course, a year before, when Fidel had showed up in the U.S., he had been a TV sensation, and the public was actually quite enamored and curious about the bearded freedom fighter they had read about in the paper. But a lot had happened since then, as we've described. All through 1959 and 1960, the American press and American politicians had demonized the Cuban Revolution and Fidel Castro personally. For many, he was now persona non grata. The tabloids called him, quote, El Beardo and, quote, a spoiled brat. Barry Goldwater described Castro as, quote, a bum without a shave. Long Islanders literally burned him in effigy, which is perhaps the greatest testament yet to his character. Aides recalled that this time around, unlike the year before, as people watched his motorcade drive by in New York City, They were not cheering. But this is not to say his admirers did not show up. In fact, 3,000 people waited for Castro on the rainy day that his plane landed. But when he tried to get out of his car to greet the crowd on the other side of the fence, police officers used nightsticks to beat the people, and they prevented Castro from even leaving his car. About a day after arriving in New York and after some lurid press reports alleging that Castro's crew was killing chickens and cooking moldy steaks in the ritzy Shelburne Hotel... On the east side, the Cubans ended up making other arrangements, cementing the legend of Fidel's visit in 1960. This would be the moment that Fidel and the Cuban delegation checked into the Hotel Teresa in Harlem. 
Raul Roa Cori was the junior most member of Cuba's permanent delegation to the UN at the time. In an interview with us, Roa explained how he had heard about the possibility of putting Fidel and the Cubans up in Harlem. When the Cuban delegation had arrived in New York, as we mentioned, they were told to restrict their movements to Manhattan. Prior to Fidel's arrival, Raul Roa Cori and his Cuban UN colleagues discussed what hotel Fidel and the delegation should check into. The Waldorf Astoria was mentioned as a possibility, but most of the group dismissed it, as it had been where Batista himself stayed. The group ultimately settled on putting Fidel and his crew up at the Shelburne Hotel in Murray Hill, which was both close to the UN and easier to secure. But they didn't stay at the Shelburne Hotel for very long. Here's how Raul tells the story. I was, at the time, I was in charge of relations with U.S. organizations and intellectuals and people who were sympathizers of the revolution. And therefore, I got a message through Bob Tabor, who was a CBS reporter. And a member and founder of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, yes. Yes, and through him, Malcolm X told us that there was this Hotel Teresa in Harlem, which was at Fidel's disposal. But before Raul could suggest the Teresa, after this offer by Malcolm X, the delegation had decided on the Shelburne, and Fidel made his way there. But eventually, the manager of the Shelburne came to bother Raul by demanding a conspicuously large deposit. The hotel manager told me that he wanted to see Fidel, and I told Fidel that the manager wanted to see him, and he said, no, you go talk to him and see what he wants. So I went, and he said that he wanted a $20,000 deposit. The manager wanted a $20,000 deposit. Mm-hmm. So when I told Fidel that this guy the $20,000 deposit, he says, he is a bandit. <laughs> you go and tell him he's a bandit and we're leaving this hotel. What were his exact words uh, in Spanish? Do you remember? Dile que un bandido. And I told him, as a matter of fact. You passed on the exact words. I used the exact words and I told him the prime minister says that we're a bandit and that he is leaving the hotel and he will not make any deposit. Known in its glory days as the Waldorf of Harlem, by the fall of 1960, Hotel Teresa was perhaps past its prime. But given the raucous reception that Fidel and his entourage immediately received upon their arrival uptown, that didn't matter one bit. Fidel's Harlem shuffle, as black activists and intellectuals would call it, quickly brought people into the streets. Maya Angelou, who was then 32 years old, was at the scene that day. And here's how she later described it after learning of Castro's move uptown from a Fair Play Committee member. In moments, we were on the street, in the rain, finding cabs or private cars or heading for subways. We were going to welcome the Cubans to Harlem. To our amazement, at 11 o'clock on a Monday evening, we were unable to get close to the hotel. Thousands of people filled the sidewalks and intersections, and police had cordoned off the main and side streets. I hovered with my friends on the edges of the crowd, enjoying the Spanish songs, the screams of Viva Castro, and the sounds of conga drums being played nearby in the damp night air. Juan Almeida, a senior Afro-Cuban rebel commander, crowds chanted his name and asked him to come out of the hotel. Historian and activist Rosemary Mealy would put together a book about Fidel's trip, compiling many testimonials. Among them was Sarah E. Wright, late black radical feminist and novelist, who said of this celebration and chanting, but these were not Cubans. These were my people, the poor, the abused, the disinherited, the trampled leavings of this country, offering their protection and love to the leader of another poor, abused, and disinherited people. The streets were packed, but the crowd kept going, bringing light and warmth 
to a dark September night, bringing light and warmth into the bleakness of their own lives. Hundreds of heavily armed police tried to do their intimidating thing. The people did not even notice them. We spoke with Bill Fletcher Jr., labor activist and former director of Trans Africa Forum, about the significance of Fidel's trip to Harlem. The Cuban Revolution was then viewed by so many people, including the Black Americas. This is this is a revolution. This is a breakthrough. And there was a great deal of excitement about the Cubans being at Harlem. Harlem was the capital of Black America politically, and some would argue culturally. But in 1960, it was clearly the capital of Black America. Uh, so it was something that to this day, I think, shocks many people. The first of the many illustrious guests Fidel would receive at the Hotel Teresa, and in fact, the person who got him into the Teresa, was Malcolm X. Even through the language barrier, Fidel made a striking impression on Malcolm X, who later told a journalist that Fidel was, quote, the only white person that I have really liked. There was an article about their meeting in the New York Citizen Call, written by black journalist Ralph Matthews. Malcolm X told Fidel, quote, Downtown, for you, it was ice. Uptown is warm. The premier smiled appreciatively. Yes, we feel very warm here. Then the Muslim leader, ever a militant, said, I think you will find the people in Harlem are not so addicted to the propaganda they put out downtown. In halting English, Dr. Castro said, I admire this. I have seen how it is possible for propaganda to make changes in people. Your people live here and are faced with this propaganda all the time. And yet, they understand. This is very interesting. There are 20 million of us, said Malcolm X, and we always understand. <laughs> 